And he is waiting until you come to the end of yourself with Paul and you say, wretched man that I am, with Jesus you concur. Apart from him I can do nothing. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord in bankruptcy, so you walk in him. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 7 of our study of the book of Romans, and in the second half of this epistle, many a believer has likely been able to associate with the experience the Apostle Paul describes, that of being born again and knowing what to do but not doing it, or knowing what not to do but doing it anyway. It's the struggle between our new nature and our old fleshly self. And that's the topic of our study today, entitled, The Battle Within. We need to understand that when we are saved, the old fallen sinful nature is not eradicated. It is still there, and the devil will tempt that fallen nature because now you are at war with the devil. When you are asleep in the arms of the devil, you are no threat to his kingdom. But when you get saved, truly saved, then if you start growing and changing and reflecting Christ, then you will do the one thing that the devil is trying to do. The devil is trying to take as many people to hell with him as he can, and you will interfere with that plan by rescuing them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. And so Paul recognizes, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And the flesh... The old self can show itself even in religious ways. We can get dressed up and come to church on Sunday. We can usher. We can serve in the nursery. We can sing in the choir. We can teach a Sunday school class, but in our own power. And it's not until we realize that it has to be done through Christ. Jesus said it in these words, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's what Paul wants us to see. That because of our fallen sinful nature, that you can do absolutely nothing good. I didn't say you can't be involved in all kinds of activity. Some of you maybe studied the Bible yesterday. Maybe some of you uh, cleaned your house or cut your grass or changed the diaper on the little baby. You can do all kinds of things. But unless it is done through and in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a big zero. It means very, very little. And so we, we get saved and we say, oh, I want to serve the Lord. And we go out in our own strength and we fall flat on our face. And we come back and we say, well, God, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve you, God. I'm, I'm going to try harder this time. And we go out and we do it again and we fall flat on our face. We try it again and again and again, and we fall and we fall and we fall and we fall and we fall. And after the while, the devil says, you're an embarrassment to Christianity. You ought to stay home. You shouldn't even come to church. So that's the condition. There's the resulting conflict. Now I want you to notice the conclusion. The conclusion. Look now at Paul's conclusion beginning in verse 21. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Again, these are not the words of a lost man. These can only be the words of a saved man. 
Someone, as he says in chapter 8 and verse 7, who is willing to be subject to the law of God. See, an unbeliever would never confess, as in verse 16, that God's standard of holiness is good and that his heart wants to do it. An unbeliever would never say these kinds of things about the law of God. An unbeliever would never say, nothing good dwells in me. Actually, he'd probably say, do you know how good I am, pastor? I ask people all the time. Why should God let you into heaven? They often tell me, you know how good I am? You know what a good father I am? What a good mother I am? You know, I try to keep the golden rule and follow the Ten Commandments. And God knows that I'm a pretty good guy. An unbeliever would never concur with God's law that says, there is none righteous, no, not one. We just read in verses 15 and 19 that he hates sin. An unbeliever would never say, I'm doing the very thing I hate. An unbeliever doesn't hate sin. He looks for it. He plans for it. He saves up for it. He saves his money every Friday and Saturday night to go out and get wasted. Because he likes sin. He applauds sin. The only thing he doesn't like are the negative consequences that sin brings. He hates getting caught. He hates the brokenness and the turmoil that sin can bring. He hates the disease of sexual sin. He hates the penalties and punishments that are built in. But he doesn't really hate sin. Only the blood-bought, born-again child of God comes to the point where he hates sin because the blood-born child of God only wants to honor the name of God, not dishonor Him. Now, if you don't carefully interpret these verses, you will misapply them. Paul is describing himself as a believer because he's been regenerated by the Spirit of God. He wants to do good. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And now in verses 22 and 23, he demonstrates an example of how this works. Notice, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In the inner man, that is in the new man, as he calls it in Colossians, in contrast to the old man or the old self in chapter 6. He joyfully concurs that God's standard is perfect. You could paraphrase it. I love the law of God from the bottom of my heart. My new inner man loves the commandments. I was speaking to a man this week who just loves his booze and loves his alcohol, and his wife's trying to help him, and says, you know, he goes out with all those Marines, and he gets on a loop, and let me just say to a lot of the Marines here, I know how widespread alcohol is in the Marine Corps, and for you to take a stand as a man of God will take some spiritual steel in your spine to be able to do that, but men will admire you, they will look up to you. And you will have a platform in which to say something. So he goes out and he has three or four beers and he starts getting buzzed. Used to take one beer. That's why God doesn't want you to have the first one because you're to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. But now it takes three or four. I said, well, maybe the problem is, is not simply the weakness of the flesh. Maybe the problem is you've never been regenerated because I don't hear you saying, I hate this. What I hear you saying is, I like it. I look forward to it. 
Maybe that's because you've never been saved. And so you don't joyfully concur in your inner man that you love God's law. Look at verse 23, he adds, but I see a different law on the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, my mind, describing his regenerated mind. Remember 1 Corinthians, when you get saved, you receive the mind of Christ. That is a new capacity to see and understand the things of the kingdom of God, a new ability to comprehend and to embrace God's truth. And as Romans 12 will teach us, as your mind is renewed through your study of Scripture, that increases and it expands. He's saying my new nature wants to do one thing, but my old nature, described here as the members of my body, wants to do something different. Verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. An unbeliever cannot say he becomes a prisoner. He's already a prisoner. But Paul says, on the one hand, there's a part of me that wants to do what is right. But on the other hand, there's a part that wants to yield. Wretched man that I am. Not I was, but I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? He's taking responsibility for himself. I was counseling someone recently on marriage, and I said, the problem is, is that two people love you. Two people love you so much, that's the problem. I said, your wife loves you to death, and you love yourself too much. He had an unhealthy love of self. And some people have an unhealthy love of self, so they never take responsibility for self. It's always someone else's fault. Wretched father that I had. Wretched mother that I had. Wretched education that I had. Wretched financial help that I didn't have. Wretched parents that I have. Wretched children that I have, wretched professor that I have, wretched boss that I have, but not wretched man that I am. We have to take responsibility for self. There'll never, ever, ever, ever be the cry of victory in chapter 8 until we come to this cry of wretchedness. And so they're saying, it's not my problem, it's the culture's problem, it's my parents' problem, it's my career's problem, it's somebody else's problem, but certainly not mine. Now, that is the conclusion of the unbeliever, but that is not to be the conclusion of the child of God. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Not what will set me free. I have the pronoun circled in my Bible. Who will set me free? Some of your translations say, who will deliver me? Another translation says, who will rescue me? It's an interesting Greek word. It was used in the first century to refer to an act that a soldier would take on behalf of his fellow soldier where he heard the cry of his fellow soldier and he went to his rescue to deliver him from the hands of the enemy. Paul is picturing himself here in enemy hands. It's a beautiful word picture that everyone who read it in the first century saw. And in those words, he understood what Pogo said in the old comic strip. We have found the enemy, and the enemy is us. Who will rescue me? Jesus Christ is the deliverer. The answer to this body of death is Christ's body of death. 
He bore our shame. He groaned our death. He broke sin's power, and one day He will deliver me forever from sin. But because as He's going to explain, remember these chapter and verse divisions are artificial. And that's why I said I don't want you to miss a single message in this series on sanctification found in 6 through 8. If you'll study it and learn it, I'll have a lot less counseling in my office. It is not until it is fleshed out in daily life through the power of the Holy Spirit that it becomes real. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I know there are some people, some Christians, I've met them, who take Romans chapter 7 as a kind of pillow to lie on and to make excuses for being backslidden. They'll say, well, listen, the great apostle Paul was backslidden. If he couldn't do it, why should God expect me to do it? But Paul didn't stay in Romans 7. He will come into Romans 8. Romans 7 was put here so that we wouldn't stay here, but we would learn something of the cry that is necessary to obtain the victory and the chapter that will follow. Paul doesn't use this as a pillow to rest on. His pillow is wet with tears. His heart is broken. One way, again, I know that Paul describes himself here as a believer is that only saved people think this way. The question you might want to ask yourself is, when I sin, how do I feel after I've sinned? When you start saying with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, that is good evidence that you've had genuine conversion. Wretched man that I am, that's not a cry of defeat. That is a cry that will lead to victory. And that's music in the ears of God Almighty. And as I said it already this morning, the problem for most of us is not that we're too weak. The problem is we are not weak enough. Now, we can't skip over the last part of verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That indeed is a great statement of victory. However, if it signaled the end of the battle for Paul, then why would he say in the rest of the verse, so then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because Paul learned his need to continue to be dependent. Paul knew that in one sense, until we are glorified, until God forever removes the sin nature, that there will be an ongoing tension, as we read this morning in Galatians. But the more you grow in Christ, the more you learn how by the Holy Spirit and His strength alone can the flesh be brought under control. Now let's ask some questions by way of application this morning. Let me ask them Three questions that will help us, I think, to apply the text of Scripture. Number one, have you ever really felt the weight of sin like Paul describes himself? Have you ever felt the weight of sin like Paul? Pastor preached a sermon on personal holiness and separation from sin, and after the message, a man came up and began to mock him. And you said, Pastor, that unsaved people carry a great weight of sin. I don't feel any weight of sin. How heavy is it, Pastor? 50 pounds? 100 pounds? 1,000 pounds? Pastor thought for a moment. He said, if you laid a 400-pound weight on a corpse, what would the corpse feel? Nothing. 
He's dead, the man said. And the pastor says, that's your problem. You see, when you are dead in sin, before you have been born a second time, which is necessary to enter the kingdom of God, you don't really feel the weight of sin the way a believer feels it. The person who doesn't know Christ doesn't feel the weight of sin in the same way a believer does. And he never will in this life until he's saved. Well, I'll take that back. He will feel it at one point. It will be on the edge of eternity at the great white throne judgment. But then it will be too late to do anything about it. I asked myself this week, what happens to a believer when he sins? And I started thinking my way through it and just making a list from the New Testament. I'm sure this is not a complete list. Number one, we grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4. Do not grieve the Spirit. We do that when we sin. Our prayers, 1 Peter 3 says, goes unanswered. 1 Corinthians 11 says it can affect our physical health. Some of you are weak and sick and some even died early. Now, some die early and it has nothing to do with sin. Understand that. It's because they live in a fallen world. But some people's physical problems are spiritually linked, the Scripture teaches. Psalm 51, David spoke of the fact that we lose the joy of our salvation when we sin. Hebrews 12 says we can come under the discipline of God when we sin. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 teaches that we are no longer useful and approved of God when we sin. Uh, Psalm 33, 1 says that praise is becoming of the upright, and so our worship is not pleasing because those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. The testimony of the local church is heard, as 1 Corinthians 5 teaches. The name of God is dishonored, as 1 Corinthians 6 teaches, even blasphemed among the heathen, as Romans 2 says. But you see, an unbeliever doesn't feel the weight of sin. So I would just ask you, have you ever felt the weight of sin? Has there ever been a change in your life where your sensitivity to sin has grown and deepened and developed? That's a mark of conversion. Secondly, do you have an obedient love for God's Word? Do you have an obedient love for God's Word? This paragraph is clear. In verse 14, he said the law is spiritual. Verse 16, I agree with the law, confessing it is good. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God. A true believer has a longing and a pleasure in finding out what the Scripture says and in obeying it. He doesn't rationalize the Word of God and say it is antiquated and has no application for us today. We have all these politicians who are saying, I'm, an, I'm a Christian, but abortion is okay. Homosexuality is okay. Sexual liaisons are okay. Getting high and pot is okay. We need to legalize it. That's what unbelievers do. A true child of God has an obedient love for the Word of God and for its standards. Third and finally, I would ask, has God ever broken you? Have you ever come to the end of yourself where you've said, wretched man that I am? When Jesus Christ delivered his very first sermon, St. Augustine first called it the Sermon on the Mount. When he was finished with his sermon, Matthew records, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The crowds were astonished. Other translations say amazed. The Greek word means stunned, beside oneself. 
And the very first words of that sermon, if you remember, were these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, understand there are two words for poor in the Greek New Testament. There are two kinds of poor people that God highlights in the scriptures. One word refers to a poor person who has a job, goes out, works hard all day, and has enough money to put food on the table and to clothe his family. But if he got sick, he had nothing to fall back on, he knew nothing of savings or financial security. But there's another word for poor that is used here in the Sermon on the Mount. And it describes the destitute poor. A person who didn't have a job. A person who had no way of purchasing food or clothing or shelter. He was the village beggar. Totally dependent on someone else for everything. Like the blind man there at the gate in Acts 3. Absolutely destitute. That's the word Jesus uses here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You could say, blessed are the poverty stricken, the totally destitute, the one who has absolutely nothing to begin with. Now, that's how you get saved. You come to Jesus Christ destitute, bankrupt, helpless, admitting there is absolutely nothing you can do to merit heaven. And the same is true of your sanctification. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. A missionary wrote home from China, and he's describing what happened one day there in his place of service. A man fell into the river. And if you know anything about the Chinese people, one of the things that they are not known for is for swimming. Most Chinese people don't swim at all. And this fellow Chinese man fell into the river. And this American missionary himself could not swim, swim, but there was one man on the bank who could swim. He said, please go and get him, jump. And the man was screaming, help me, someone help me, help me. He just stood there and he watched and looked at the man. And then more people came and began to plead with him, please, you're the only one who can swim. Please go in and save the man. And as they pled, he kept his eye on the man and he just watched him. And he seemed hard and cold and calloused. And finally, when the man could thrash no more, that man jumped in and he grabbed the man and he brought him safely to shore. And the missionary came up and he said, you are one of the most selfish persons I ever met. Weep begged you to save him. And it wasn't until we incessantly begged you that you jumped in to get him. How could you do such a thing? The man says, no, you don't understand. I'm a swimmer, but I'm not a good swimmer. And if I jumped in when he still had a lot of kick, he would have drowned us both. I was waiting until he came to the end. I was waiting till all of his strength had expired and then I could come and save him. The reason some of us have never found deliverance and never found consistency and victory in the Christian life is because we've never come to the end of ourselves. It's God, give me one more chance. God, I'll turn over a new leaf. God, I know I can do it. But God hasn't taken his eye off of you. And he is waiting until you come to the end of yourself with Paul. And you say, wretched man that I am. With Jesus you concur. Apart from him I can do nothing. 
Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord in bankruptcy, so you walk in him. You're not like the Pharisee who prayed there in the temple, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay a tithe of all that I get. And while he was praying at the same time, another man a short distance away, Jesus said, was praying. He was a tax collector who was a symbol in that first century of Jewish creed and corruption. Someone who had sold out to the Roman government and would legally collect more than he, than the people should pay. And they hated such people. And the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to look up into heaven. But he beat his breast. That's the heart of the problem. And he said, God, be merciful to me, this sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you this man, he goes home to his house justified, saved, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. When the Pharisee prays, he's impressed with himself. When the tax collector prays, he's impressed with God. And so it is for the child of God. Paul was not impressed with himself. Wretched man that I am. But he was impressed with what God could do through him. Now, if you've never initially have come to Christ and received him as your savior, if you've never abandoned your own plan of salvation and embraced God's plan through the death and his resurrection of his son, then you will never be saved. But God would invite you to come to Jesus Christ today. Would you do that? Would you come? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you for your word. As the psalmist said, as we read this morning, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that it enlightens us. It, it sheds abroad your truth that we can understand your ways. I pray first today, Father, for someone who is here, who is never as a non-believer, come to the end of themselves. They may be Christianized. They may know Jesus is God who died on the cross, who was raised from the dead, but they've never trusted in the sufficiency of Christ. They're holding on to things they've done or might do as a means to heaven. But your word says that we're saved by grace and not of works, that salvation is not earned, but it is the gift of God received. Help someone like the tax collector to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And for those of us who have met you, help us to understand more and more and more and more how in ourselves we are nothing. But that unless you live your life in and through us, we are destined only for failure. God, take the message sink it and seal it deep within our hearts that we might apply it. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If you'd like to hear this message from Romans chapter 7 in its entirety, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org. And if you've not already done so, download the Search the Scriptures app available on the Apple Store and Google Play Store. There you can also listen to this or any of Pastor Brogy's series of messages. Again, that's the Search the Scriptures app. 
Do you have a question about the Bible or the Christian life? You can ask Dr. Brogy on his Tuesday call-in program, The Bible Line. Just call between 11 and noon Eastern to 877-924-7980 and ask or dictate your questions. And you can listen to The Bible Line on the internet at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll begin our look at what some people have called the greatest chapter of the greatest epistle of the greatest book of all times, chapter 8 of Romans. We hope you'll join us as we look at the blessing of freedom in Christ as we search the scriptures.